Rising. We have a fantastic show for you planned today. Uh, I actually did a radar today, so. Ooh, teacher's pet, gold star, Robbie. <laughs> thank you, thank you. We will also hear from Michael Schellenberger, and we will discuss the Wall Street Journal's confirmation of his reporting on COVID-19's patient zero. Plus, a judge in Arkansas actually struck down the state's ban on gender-affirming care for minors. We'll, of course, discuss that later. But first, we've got some developments to get into. Mm, Take it away, Brie. Indeed. Well, Robbie, the search is still underway for the missing Titanic Taurus submersible carrying five people in the waters of the North Atlantic. As of this morning, officials say the craft is carrying just 20 hours of breathable oxygen left. Late last night, Canadians conducting military surveillance in the area reported hearing underwater noises they say could indicate the group's continued survival. According to Rolling Stone, U.S. Homeland Security Intelligence indicates the noise is a, quote, banging that occurs every 30 minutes. Meanwhile, reporters have uncovered some troubling signs about the company that owns the doomed submersible, OceanGate. OceanGate's CEO, Stockton Rush, was recorded back in November speaking on the safety of the vessel, quote, you know, at some point, safety is just pure waste. I mean, if you just want to be safe, don't get out of your bed, don't get in your car, don't do anything. At some point, you're going to take some risk really is a risk-reward question. Rush is currently on the missing sub. Plus, reporters at The New Republic revealed that Oceangate is currently being sued by a former employee who claims he was terminated after raising concerns that the submersible was incapable of descending to such extreme depths as the Titanic wreck site. Now, meanwhile, a telling six-month-old CBS report on the sub featuring David Pogue, who I've mentioned before, has gone viral. Let's watch. Service an experimental submersible vessel that has not been approved or certified by any regulatory body and could result in physical injury, disability, emotional trauma, or death. Where do I sign? Oh! Take your shoes off, that's customary. Okay. Wow! Inside, the sub has about as much room as a minivan. So this is not your grandfather's submersible. <laughs> we only have one button, that's it. It should be like an elevator. You know, it shouldn't take a lot of skill. The Titan is the only five-person sub in the world that can reach titanic depths, 2.4 miles below the sea. It's also the only one with a toilet, sort of. And yet, I couldn't help noticing how many pieces of this sub seemed improvised. We can use these off-the-shelf components. I got these from uh, Camper World. We run the whole thing with this game controller. <laughs> Come on! So the game controller is apparently pretty standard. Uh, Gene Park, who's a video game writer for the Washington Post, was saying that's not so weird. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah. I want to use this as an opportunity to pivot to discussing which video game controllers I think are the best design ones. Spoiler, it's the Nintendo GameCube, but uh, this is a serious story, so we'll Yeah, I mean, look, Robbie, I, I, I take that point that a lot of people are making a lot out of the fact of the game controller because it seemed to point to the ad hoc nature and dangerous nature of this submersible. That part, I don't think actually, according to experts, is what was so galling. What's so galling is that there have been employee, if a former employee that tried to raise a red flag about the safety risks, the kind of b explicitly poor risk assessment that you heard from the uh, uh, OceanGate um, owner who is, is conflating the risk of going down to unfathomable depths in a self-made, uncertified vessel. 
with getting out of bed in the morning or getting into your car. And humans notoriously have terrible personal risk assessments. It's why when uh, Ralph Nader's book, Unsafe at Any Speed, came out and the automotive industry was forced to contend with the safety of its vehicles and put seatbelts and airbags and things like that in cars, a lot of Americans rebelled and were angry and said, I should be allowed to not wear a seatbelt. I should be allowed to not to, to drink in cars and drink while I'm not wearing a seatbelt with my kid on my lap. Mm -hmm. And it's not because people are you know, wanting bad things to happen to them, but we don't have a good sense of what the risk reward of a lot of longer term, especially longer term planning things are in our life. It's also why we have things like social security that kind of nudge us into the direction of saving for retirement. And now we see exactly what happens when you shirk the kinds of regulations that are uh, applied to these vehicles under the normal course of things that are intended to keep folks safe. Right, but this is out somewhere where the regulations don't apply and you can do whatever you want Indeed. and you can take on these risks and they knew the risk getting into the tiny claustrophobic enclosed space that they were going to drop two and a half miles under the ocean and they did that. Um, I, I would never do that. I think most people would have a fear of that, but obviously people have taken this journey before and survived. Um, James Cameron, the Titanic director, has. Uh, we were. I was looking at it after we talked about this yesterday. Has done it a bunch of times, over and over and over again. Um, and I, I guess you know, I, I, I was seeing someone saying on Twitter that you know, think of all the. I mean, it was the discovery is dangerous, right? I mean, they said Columbus, no, you're going to fall off the Earth and you know, zoom off into space if you go over over the edge of the of the uh, Atlantic Ocean. And that's how America was discovered. And, and the Antarctic exploration was danger, ar dangerous. Arctic exploration was dangerous. A lot of those people died. So I think the argument, the analogy would be if an expert shipbuilder, top of his class, top of his field in 1492, went to Christopher Columbus and said, the ship that you're planning to take this unprecedented ocean mm -hmm. voyage has some pretty identifiable flaws and has not been certified by the ship experts at the time. I mean, they effectively I did do that, that you, because they told him that, I mean, his, his theory for what would happen was wrong. He didn't have enough because he thought he was going to make it all the way to... India? No, I'm not talking about how much you know meat and food you, you pack right. on the ship. I'm talking about the ship itself, what we know about the physics of ocean travel, that even if you're going to be on the, on the water for a, a, a day or a week, I'm telling you that the design here has issues and you need to be have them looked at. There are, they're identifiable before you even disembark issues with this craft, and you should have it certified by experts. And he says, nah, I'm good dog. I've done this before. And I think that's the problem here. It's that there, there were red flags that were raised about this particular craft by employees who were then fired for having the gall to actually raise those kinds of safety risks. And I do wonder, I wonder if the individuals who signed their liability waivers before getting into there, including a 19-year-old kid or young man, were really aware of exactly what risk they were assuming when they got into the craft. <laughs> if I'm sorry, they're going to the bottom of the ocean. They have to know it's risky, and that even. Wait, I'm sorry. I'm saying specifically, did they know that there was an employee who specifically raised concerns about the risk of the craft and was fired so that the company didn't actually have to engage in those risks and, and remedying those problems with the craft? I mean, it's it's uh, under no circumstances is it going to be entirely safe just like it's not entirely safe to get into a get in a rocket and go into space 
these are uncharted territories. It is an inherently risky thing to do. And I don't know that maybe there were really egregious, negligent safety protocols here, and that should be more fully explored. Obviously, we're wasting resources now to try to find this thing, which I think is, uh, as I said when we discussed this yesterday, I think it's extremely unlikely. Obviously, everyone can hope for the best, but it, I, it seems very unlikely to me they'll find it. Um, but I, I, I think it's, I think it's, a, I think it's a, a dangerous, risky thing to do. And if that's, if you want to undertake that, that's your choice. But um, from from a legal perspective, the concept of assumed risk hinges on your the, the disclosure of what the actual risks are. And I think we obviously have to understand that if I tell you, yeah, getting on a roller coaster is risky, but you assume the risk when you get on it, versus this roller coaster has been condemned mm -hmm. and experts in roller coasters say you should not get on this ride. It's going to crumble at any moment. Those are two different things. So the issue is not the inherent risk of the activity. The issue is whether or not there were additional risks that were not fully disclosed. And moreover, for the company to have the hubris to know that you're engaging in an inherently risky behavior and ignore the red flags that are being raised. This is exactly why many people believe that there should be something called um, strict liability when you're engaging in very, very risky behavior. Like, I don't know, transporting toxic chemicals in a train across uh, Ohio and Pennsylvania. Uh, because at the end of the day, there are, you know, it, some activities are, are so inherently dangerous that when there are these spillover effects that affect populations and communities, et cetera, they should be forced to pay as opposed to be able to say, well, sometimes that's right, just but, the bad. Right. Those are harms to third persons, to uninvolved people. Yeah. The people who got in that, who got in that submersible, I mean, I think it's, I think it's on them. I think they knew what they were getting into and that's how it goes. Yeah, well, there are ample, there's ample evidence, including in this piece in the New York Times yesterday, that really go through all of the warnings that the uh, OceanGate uh, company was alerted to as to the safety issues involved. Uh, OceanGate's director of marine operations, David Lockridge, this is from the article, started working on a report according to court documents, ultimately producing a scathing document in which he said the craft needs more testing and stress the potential dangers to passengers of the Titan as the submersible reached extreme depths. Two month, months later, OceanGate faced similarly dire calls from more than three dozen people, industry leaders, deep sea explorers, and oceanographers, who warned in a letter to its chief executive, Stockton Rush, the person on the submersible, that the company's experimental approach and its decision to forego a traditional assessment could lead to potentially catastrophic problems with the Titanic mission. Obviously, we'll continue to keep reporting on this as we learn more uh, and see if in the next 24 hours or so, the people on that craft are able to be rescued. More rising after this. Robbie, a radar, what a treat. What do you have for us today? Well, Brianna, the lab leak theory of COVID-19's origins gained tremendous legitimacy this week as the Wall Street Journal confirmed independent reports from friends of the show, Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger, that the earliest outbreak occurred 
at the Wuhan Institute of Virology in November 2019. Patient zero are now presumed to be three Chinese scientists, least one of whom, Ben Hu, worked extensively on gain-of-function research, the manipulation of viruses to make them more dangerous, which was funded by grants from the U.S. federal government. Those cases occurred in November 2019, well before the Hunan wet market outbreak favored by some in the scientific community as the more likely origin story, and they occurred among the very people one would most suspect in the event of a lab accident. This is quite damning, to say the least. Anyone still clinging to an animal origin theory, remember the pangolins and the raccoon dogs? They're cute. Is running up against Occam's razor. Assuming the intelligence reports are accurate and that Hu and his colleagues did contract the earliest cases of COVID-19, the implications are fairly earth-shattering. Let's be frank. This would mean that substandard safety protocols at the Wuhan lab probably unleashed a killer pathogen on the rest of the planet, and the Chinese government attempted to cover it up. China, however, is hardly the only government on the hook. The lab leak also means that research paid for by U.S. tax dollars and vouched for by coronavirus czar Anthony Fauci, the nation's foremost advocate of gain of function, is partly to blame for a pandemic that killed millions of people worldwide. Fauci, the very person tasked with leading the U.S. response to COVID-19, was in charge of the government agency that gave WHO the gain-of-function research initially sickened, the, the researcher who got sick with COVID first, millions of dollars to experiment with bat coronaviruses. Information on the central role played by Fauci's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases was made public by the White Coat Waste Project, a watchdog group that uses public records requests to scrutinize federal funding of science. The journal cited the organization's work, writing that it confirmed who's receipt of U.S. funds. We interviewed a member of that group on the show yesterday, so please go watch that. Now, concerns about the potential for catastrophic harm the Obama administration had actually paused federal funding of gain-of-function research in 2014. Now, in late 2022, Fauci sat for a seven-hour deposition admitting that exceptions had been made for gain-of-function research deemed vital to government scientists. And in any case, the pause ended in 2017. Meanwhile, numerous authorities, including the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, have raised concerns about negligence at the Wuhan lab over the years. Vanity Fair and ProPublica described the lab as a biocomplex in crisis. Well, this sounds like a recipe for disaster. Uh, here we are. The confirmation of the lab leak theory would also mean that all the mainstream journalists, establishment scientists, social media moderators who derided its adherents as racist conspiracy theorists, were stunningly, humiliatingly wrong. This should serve as a potent lesson to all the entities, many of them state-funded, by the way, that have made policing alleged misinformation their seminal issue. The misinformation cops probably got this one really, really wrong. Now, said cops include some of the most influential voices in the scientific community and expert commentariat. The New York Times lead coronavirus reporter, Apoorva Mandavili, previously described the lab leak theory as having racist roots. CNN medical analyst Leanna Wen lamented the theory's likelihood of inspiring anti-Chinese animus. Others in the media called lab leak a fringe conspiracy. Vaccine scientist Peter Hotez, who was recently feuded with Joe Rogan over Hotez's refusal or unwillingness to debate RFK Jr. on vaccines, well, he criticized Jon Stewart for daring to raise the issue in a kind of joking, serious but joking manner on an episode of Stephen Colbert's show. Let's watch. 
we do need to know the origins of COVID. So your issue is that, that John Stewart and others who are embracing this theory are just jumping the gun. It's not that it's not possible. You're just saying they're jumping the gun and, and saying this without the evidence. That, that's right. And they're putting the entertainment value of this uh, over and above uh, what's reality. And it causes a lot of damage because uh, a number of scientists who work on coronaviruses, including myself, uh, feel that we're being under attack right now. Boo-hoo. And then Meta, of course, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, vigorously censored posts about the lab leak theory before finally abandoning this policy as the theory gained some mainstream acceptance in the summer of 2021. As revealed by the Facebook files, my own report on the constant communication between social media companies and federal health bureaucrats, Facebook took its COVID cues from the government. Now, all of this behavior, these efforts to shame or suppress individuals who are asking questions about the preferred narratives of government scientists now seem incredibly short-sighted. The Biden administration has committed, of course, to declassifying intelligence related to the origins of COVID-19, consistent with bipartisan legislation signed earlier this year. Frustratingly, the feds have missed the congressionally imposed deadline, which was last weekend. It is long past time for President Joe Biden and federal health officials to tell the American people the truth so that all responsible parties can ultimately be held to account. Because despite the brazen assumptions of so many media commentators, the lab leak theory does not have unilaterally anti-Chinese implications. On the contrary, it is the explanation for COVID-19 that incriminates the West as well. Yeah, I can't get over the extent to which this whole controversy is such an own goal. It was, it was a choice to make it into a partisan issue in the first place. Yes. There's nothing partisan about this. Where, how did it's COVID not happen? At all. Like who? Like mm -hmm. how did this should not be a gotcha in any by any stretch of the imagination. Honestly, it's the that, if you had like a neoconservative, hawkish, anti-China agenda, you'd rather it be solely the fault of just an outbreak in China. Sure. <laughs> I mean, sure. But the point I'm trying to make is that the Democrats, by choosing yeah. to weirdly, emotionally and politically invest themselves in natural origin theory for years and specifically call people who are even willing to discuss lab leak theory, kooks and loons. I remember I remember covering this shortly after I started my own podcast in like the spring of 2021 and the idea of having um, an expert on to even talk about an article he just written in The Guardian about lab leak theory was considered deeply controversial when it should not have been that case at all. And so now I'm still seeing people on the internet, on, on Twitter, kind of resisting the new reporting that's coming out, even as it's being confirmed by the same kind of mainstream corporate sources that they typically like and support. And it's it's bizarre. Just just at any point in this, you could just say, oh, well, I guess I was wrong, moving on. But the doubling down is really something to watch. Right. It's uh, for some reason, and you're exactly right that it didn't need to be like this at all. This is a choice. But people are so bought into their framing. People like Peter Hotez, who he yeah. played that clip, who's, again, it, it was someone, I, I've seen his face on television. I couldn't have told you what his name was before mm -hmm. this week. He's one of many, whatever, libbish, mainstream, COVID, talking head type people. Um, but he's been in the news a lot this week because he has been on Joe Rogan and right. he, he, they, they wanted to have this debate on vaccines because he's been so for vaccines. 
And, and he's, he's come under criticism for kind of shirking that debate. And then he said, I'm being harassed, I'm being stalked, I'm yeah. being attacked. In very much, you're attacking science if you're attacking me kind yes. of language. And then you see in that clip where he's talking about the lab leak theory, you know, it's wrong to joke about this or, or, or raise this question because it's an attack on science and it's making scientists' job harder. And like, what, what is this priesthood? Exactly, and he's devaluing science and the authority of people like him. Yeah. It's not just that he said, oh, it's, it's whatever he said about Jon Stewart. He also said there was no lab leak. It was all, it was all made up BS. Zero evidence for lab leak. I mean zero zilch nada. I mean like th mm -hmm. this is this is the kind of narrative that has been put out there and there's absolutely no humi humility when new facts get revealed. And then you you have questions about why folks are skeptical just to fall in line and trust scientific authority. I've spent the last day on the internet arguing with people because I simply read some scientific studies by myself and actually invited scientists to come and weigh in and tell me where I was wrong or how you should interpret certain kind of data. And when you ask them specific questions, they typically, that so often what you hear is this, well, so-and-so is an anti-vaxxer. Not right. they, they are misreading this study or they are cherry picking studies and here are 10 other studies or a survey of studies that demonstrate that that one study was disproven because here's the science. They're never talking about, a sci about science. They speak in these broad, conclusive statements that are begging you just to trust them and their authority and not the words that actual scientists have written on the page. And I'm very concerned because there is a struggle for lay people to understand various terms and norms within the field. We need people who are experts to be able yes. to weigh in and translate some of this stuff or provide clarity on some of this stuff. And there is a total unwillingness to do it in favor of bromides that are overly broad and then don't give confidence to what actually has right. been uncovered as opposed to the narratives that we know that the mainstream media and some of these government actors want you to swallow. Right. And ultimately, this was, this was uh, I mean, th these revelations are coming as a result of, of journalism, frankly, of, uh, you know, the scientists, some of the scientists have said, well, you know, we've looked at the genetic profile of, of the disease and we, that, so it's, it's not going to be a lab leak. It, yeah. You know, it's something that, well, okay, so says you, but now journalists, again, mainstream, not just Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi, but the Wall Street Journal, I presume other outlets are going to confirm this in the fullness of time, just as they ended up, you know, confirming eventually like the New York Post's Hunter Biden laptop story, all that stuff. Like it's going to get confirmed that these scientists got, it's a question of following the documents yeah. of, you know, that they got sick. Here, here was the funding grant. Here's the research they were working on that makes the conclusion inescapable. It's it, it, it was it's like stay in your lane, scientists. Like this was actually a job for journalists. I wish more had taken on that cause. But you had you know organizations like the New York Times, which does even though, as much as we criticize it, does great work a lot of the time. Getting a little bit hoodwinked. I mean, it's a lead coronavirus person had had this view of the lab leak as well. That was a racist conspiracy theory, and then they went all in on that. You know, the study about all the genetic material found at Wuhan, the swab with the with the raccoon dog DNA raccoon has COVID. Dogs. You know, it just it's it's <laughs> you can get you can be very smart, you can be very thorough, you can be all for the science, but this stuff requires additional verification by by other people in the commentariat. And uh, what, a, what a frustrating place we've found ourselves in. But I'm, I'm glad what appears to be the truth now is finally, you know, we can all keep our eyes and ears open for alternative possibilities and new evidence to surface. Absolutely. But I'm having a hard time understanding how it couldn't be a lab leak. 
if, if in fact those three are the first people to get COVID. I think you're right, Robbie. Great radar. Thank you. More rising right after this. Recent reporting from the Wall Street Journal writes the United States funded scientist Benjamin Hu, who is one of the three Chinese researchers to reportedly fall ill during the early outbreak of COVID-19, according to current and former U.S. officials. Hu was a scientist at the Wuhan Institute of Virology who had done research on how coronaviruses infect humans. The officials reportedly told the journal that the other two scientists who fell ill were Yu Ping and Yan Zhu. Now, this confirms a report from journalist and friend of the show, Michael Schellen and also Matt Taibbi and Alex Gutentag, which named Ben Hu, Yu Ping, and Yan Zhu as three of the earliest people to become infected with SARS-CoV-2, according to sources in the United States government, who reportedly led the Wuhan Institute's gain-of-function research on, quote, SARS-like coronaviruses. In response to news yesterday that President Joe Biden missed a deadline he signed that called for the declassification of possible links to COVID origins, Intercept D.C. Bureau Chief Ryan Grimm tweeted, Biden is breaking the law by refusing to declassify information Congress ordered him to declassify. This is the public's information, not Biden's. Joining us now to discuss all of this is Twitter Files author Michael Schellenberger. Welcome back, Michael. Good to be with you guys. Okay, so first, tell me about uh, the choice not to declassify this, these documents. What does it mean and what do you think the reason behind it is? Do you suspect that there is information that is going to be unflattering to the administration? I mean, that's definitely the suspicion. And the people that we've been interviewing have said that it is complex to declassify information. You want to both protect the sources and also the methods in which that intelligence was gathered. There was a lot of reluctance on the part of our sources to even describe how the intelligence that they were passing on to us was collected. They were reluctant to even name the three patients zero. But ultimately, yeah, this is the information, as Ryan Grimm said, that belongs to the American people. It does not belong to the federal government. I think we've seen way too much secrecy around this, secrecy that impeded a proper response to the pandemic, that's impeded getting to the bottom of how it started and how it spread and was allowed to spread so quickly, since obviously having known where it came from might have been a way to stop it spread much earlier, at least to deal with it. So I think it's a really bad look for the administration to be you know, behind the eight ball on this. We're now at least uh, uh, a day past due and when they had promised to get this information out. Um, it's understandable that these things you have to done, be done with care, but they've known that they've needed to do this for the last three months. So it's hard not to read some potential ulterior motives in this stalling and delaying in the production of this report. Right, absolutely. Obviously, the deadline was this weekend, so I was hoping to see that information by now. Um, the Wall Street Journal re uh, confirming, you know, what you reported um, uh, a few days ago or last week about, you know, those patients zero. I'm wondering if, if you've, you know, in look, you know, looking at the discourse on social media or elsewhere, are, are you um, seeing people who had? Uh, disdained the lab leak theory or written it off as a conspiracy theory now that and maybe they didn't you know believe you last week but now there's also a mainstream media institution has confirmed it as well I I I, I guess it, it's still theoretically possible that you and the Wall Street Journal were misled and the intelligence was wrong it seems very much in the realm of extremely unlikely to me at this point so are you seeing people who had disdained the lab leak theory um, uh, admitting that they were wrong or that they shouldn't have uh, written it off so easily? 
Definitely we're seeing that. And I think it's still dawning on people what a scandal this really was. I mean, I think people need to be reminded that in January, late January 2020, uh, uh, Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins uh, were told by their top scientific advisors that, that they thought that that was a more likely to be a lab leak than to be a zoonotic spillover. And yet a few days later, they were orchestrating what I think can genuinely be called a disinformation campaign, a campaign of propaganda aimed at discrediting the lab leak theory as a so-called conspiracy theory. The original headline in the Washington Post was that Senator Tom Cotton was spreading a discredited conspiracy theory. It was never discredited. There's a long history of lab leaks. There's a new book out uh, actually uh, by Allison Young that describes that history where lab leaks, there's, they're very frequent and they had led to uh, past epidemics. So it should never have been written off. I think there's also a uh, an accountability that's required for the mainstream news media, that they went so willingly and unskeptically along with the government line. And then, of course, we also saw that Facebook had censored a New York Post mm -hmm. piece in February 2020. It was an op-ed piece simply as someone expressing their opinion that it could be a lab leak. So there's a lot of uh, bad behavior that still needs to be accounted for. I think there is going to be some time for this information to sink in. Uh, I think it's a testament to the reason why we should not have government officials uh, out there spreading this kind of propaganda irresponsibly. We need much more transparency, much more quickly. We need the social media platforms to be less obeisant uh, to what government sources are saying. We need the news media to not be so partisan and so dogmatic for suggesting that somehow because it was first floated by Republicans, that it was somehow a Republican theory. So I do think there's still a lot of... Um, you know, a, a lot of learning that needs to go on, both for the American people and for these very powerful institutions, which really, I think, behaved badly in this particular case. Yeah, speaking of, of course, Peter uh, Hotez has been in the news quite a bit recently as he is being um, pushed and pulled uh, into a potential debate with uh, Joe Rogan. Uh, but he is not—this is not the first time that he's been before the public eye. He was someone who quite famously, now notoriously, gave an interview in which he described uh, John Stewart's lab leak joke uh, on late-night TV as an attack on science. It was characterized by dangerous by a lot of people. I wonder what you make of the public reaction now that lab leak is increasingly confirmed by even mainstream sources. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, so first of all, I think that we need to grow up a little bit in our understanding of both reality and knowledge, meaning science and how we understand that evolving reality. I mean, look, you know, what we call the coronavirus was actually multiple variants changing over time. The vaccine had different levels of efficacy uh, over time. And um, we saw, for example, uh, that it did not deliver on either preventing the spread um, or preventing people from getting sick with coronavirus. It did, um, I think the evidence shows that it did uh, reduce hospitalizations and death. I'm a supporter of vaccines. Uh, but I, I think this idea that somehow the world stands still and that, that science evaluates it at one point of time and that that stands permanently, it's a really childlike view of science, as is this idea that scientists should not engage in public debates. You know, I mean, here you have someone like Joe Rogan. He's he goes for, you go for three hours on Joe Rogan. How could you possibly not want to participate in that kind of a forum? It's the opposite of the kind of crossfire debates that you used to see where you really did have to talk fast and try to get your words in there. Three hours is plenty of time. And so I think that if you're 
you know, so there's a weird mix of arrogance and insecurity here. It's yeah. arrogance on the one hand that suggests that because of my position and my credentials, I should be able to decide what other people can read and listen to. But it's insecurity, too, in the sense that you don't feel confident enough in your position to be able to defend it publicly. One of the most vexing aspects of the lab leak discourse for me was the idea that, uh, you know, discussing that theory or preferring that theory was was racist, that it was the racially problematic explanation for COVID's origins when compared with the wet market theory. It, I think this just doesn't make any sense. The wet market involves specifically um, Asian cultural practices, where the lab leak actually is a theory that there's complicity, certainly with the Chinese government and the laboratory's uh, substandard safety protocol calls, but also, frankly, of the West and the U.S. government, which, which funded, which we, we now know, thanks to a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests from organizations like the White Coat uh, Waste Project. We had a representative of that organization on the show yesterday, showing very clearly that Ben Hu, uh, the, the now believed to be patient zero, according to your reporting and others, um, was literally the person on the, on the named on the grant that was coming from our own health agencies. This was, you know, signed for. This is Fauci is is all over this. Is involved at the highest levels. Um, where uh, you know, I, you know, I've never been someone who thinks that like you know Fauci because he advocated policies I disagree with or something he should be in jail. Like you know, he has the right to recommend policies. Um, this, but to my mind, this does go beyond this. I mean, if if this research is responsible or is involved in in the origins of a pandemic that killed 10 million people, um, I would think there would need to be some institutional consequences and also consequences for the individuals who were at the foremost level advocating these dangerous policies. Well, that's right. And so when you look at the behaviors of Fauci and Collins, those look like behaviors of a cover-up. Um, for it to be a cover-up, of course, that would suggest that their research and their funding, which included skirting President Obama's 2014 ban on gain-of-function research um, uh, and violating the spirit, if not the, the letter of that law, but it does look as though that very well may have been a cover-up and that they may well be responsible for having, if not directly caused, at least contributed to the creation of this pandemic. And so that's a, I mean, that's, that's a huge story. First of all, that the pandemic um, appears very strongly to have been human created, um, that it was created uh, by some, by, by very powerful individuals who felt that they had the authority to basically violate the law that had been set by the president, um, that, it, that they then afterwards, they covered it up demonize their opponents as conspiracy theorists and as racists. And, you know, our country just has such a long and tragic history of racism, obviously anti-Semitism, and we start to see those words being abused. And I think that anybody that cares about the progress that we've made in our country on civil rights and that cares about equal rights should be particularly upset and angry when those kinds of, when that kind of language is being used to disparage people unfairly, as you said, the notion that the Chinese are all eating bats or that they're eating pangolins, that's a much more racist trope than the idea that the Chinese are not very good at lab security, particularly <laughs> given that everybody's been bad at lab security. Right. I think there's a lot of reasons to be quite upset about this. We haven't gotten to the bottom of it yet. We do need answers. And I'm with you, Robbie. I don't feel a strong will to punish, but I do have a strong will to get to the bottom of what's going on and get to the truth of this matter. It does matter. It does matter for both just having an understanding of the past but also to being able to prevent similar kinds of pandemics from occurring in the future. Mm. Michael Schellenberger, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me, guys.
Special counsel John Durham testified before the House Judiciary Committee on Wednesday morning. Let's watch some of that. A significant problem. Several of the relevant FISA applications at issue um, in the Crossfire investigation omitted references to what was clearly relevant and highly exculpatory information that should have been disclosed to the FISA court. Multiple FBI personnel who signed or assisted in preparing renewal applications for that same FISA warrant acknowledged that they did not believe that the target, Mr. Page, was a threat to national security, much less a knowing agent of a foreign power, which is what the law requires. It appears from our investigation that the FBI leadership dismissed those concerns. Another aspect of our findings concerned the FBI's failure to sufficiently scrutinize information it received or to apply the same standards to allegations it received about the Clinton and Trump campaigns. As our report details, the FBI was uh, too willing to accept and use politically funded and uncorroborated uh, opposition research, such as the Steele dossier. The FBI relied on the dossier and FISA applications, knowing that it was uh, likely um, material originating from a political campaign, a political opponent. So in his remarks, Durham harshly criticized FBI leadership and how they handled these matters. But Democratic Representative Steve Cohen uh, accused Durham of tying himself to Trump by raising any of these questions. Let's watch some of that. Your reputation will be damaged. As everybody's reputation who gets involved with Donald Trump is damaged, he's damaged goods. There's no good dealing with him because you will end up on the bottom of a pyre. I yield back the balance of my time. Sure. My, we um, presume the gentleman's undecided on, on how he feels about the pre former president. Yeah. Gentlemen, witness can respond. Yeah, my uh, concern about my reputation is with uh, the people who I respect, and my family, and my lord. And I'm perfectly comfortable with my reputation with them, sir. So he, Durham infuriated uh, many Democrats by even, even scrutinize, even casting some aspersions on how the FBI handled um, the Trump-Russia investigation. Uh, you know, he's criticizing the FBI for taking the Steele dossier at face value. The, the FISA court authorization for surveillance of aid um, Carter Page looks very baseless and inappropriate, and it, it's clear the FBI should not have done that, did not have enough information to, to authorize that. Look, this is basic civil liberties stuff. These are questions about how top law enforcement agents behaved. And in another planet, another dimension, I would love to see Democrats who ostensibly care about civil liberties um, applauding the, some scrutiny of law enforcement and the actions it took. Instead, they are, and, and look, he didn't, he didn't go, some Republicans don't think he went far enough because he didn't like personally make a citizen's arrest of Hunter Biden or something. Mm -hmm. they, they don't think he went far enough. But Democrats are losing their minds because he was making mild criticism of how the FBI handled these matters, saying, you're, oh, you're like some Trumpist, you're some MAGA freak. This is, this is so, I mean, this is endlessly mockable and terribly unhealthy for our democracy, for the project of stopping the government from trespassing on our rights. What we've seen is that the Democratic Party's commitment to Russiagate and absolving themselves of any responsibility for losing the election in 2016 and for their political troubles after that has 
um, completely overwhelmed their capacity to care about any of these foundational, fundamental civil, liberty, civil liberties issues that they once claimed to be core to the beliefs of the Democratic Party project. We've seen what their priorities are, and their priorities are to tarnish uh, Trump and his movement, even when it is not merited, above these what should be the kind of core concerns that would continue to draw people to the Democratic Party, regardless of who's running on the other side. So much so that, you know, one of the sort of viral clips uh, out of this morning's hearings was Jerry Nadler attempting to uh, embarrass Durham by pointing out that he has only brought three cases to trial and that he's lost all of those cases, which I think Durham kind of handled with aplomb, just answering, yeah, that's true. But what does that have to do about the sum and substance of what I sure. actually have uncovered here or failed to uncover? Sure. Th this is mild criticism of how the FBI handled this investigation. This, this is... He didn't get over. He didn't go over his skis, and he didn't give you know the most right-wing Republicans everything they wanted in terms of indicting the entire system for corruption. But he pointed out that some of these practices were clearly bad, were not founded based on the intelligence they had, and and we should be worried again not so much that they did this to Trump, but that they could do this to you. And, and I mean, and Carter Page was not Trump. He was an aide who was surveilled for no reason, uh, for not for a, a sufficient reason. That's something they can do to all of us, and we should be so worried about that. And Democrats used to be a part during the George Bush years. They said they were a party that cared yeah. about that. Yeah. And it's just now, but now, former law enforcement, former FBI agents are there, are are the experts they turn to. Um, I was a, a former colleague of mine at, at Reason, Radley Balco, um, who does a lot of good work on criminal justice. For the, he was recently at the Washington Post. He tweeted something the, the other day that I thought was so correct, hmm. saying that he hopes that MSNBC, CNN, cable news, when they talk about the Trump boxes, documents case, could they ever invite on someone who's not a prosecutor? Hmm. All of the experts they rely on are prosecutors, mm -hmm. which creates, and that was the problem they got into with like the Kyle Rittenhouse story mm -hmm. and other things. They're only hearing from prosecutors mm -hmm. who are assuring the audiences that these cases are airtight mm -hmm. and are speaking from the prosecutor's perspective. Mm -hmm. And that's only one side of the story. But, and, and this, this, again, this anathema to where Democrats and liberals were throughout the aughts in terms of civil liberties, but now that's their, that's their group. Their group is 100%. the top law enforcement advisor. And that prosecutor bias is also a huge problem with um, federal judge appointments, et cetera. The criminal justice system is dominated by people in authority who come up through the ranks as prosecutors. It is a known path to politics to work in a prosecutor's office. It's something that you saw people like Kamala Harris do. It's a way to get a lot of trial experience and move up the ranks, and it attracts a certain sort. And then that bias of their experiences there infects our entire um, criminal injustice system, as some people have uh, taken to call it. It's, it's interesting here, uh, with respect to Durham, that everyone seems to be angry with him. Um, I'm noticing uh, some critique from Aaron Maté from a left perspective, who is voicing some concerns that he declined to investigate the DNC hacking claims more closely and that uh, there was uh, uh, potentially evidence that the Clinton campaign uh, gave false statements in the course of that uh, 
escapade. You know, I, 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 I'm interested in some of these critiques, but it also does strike me that maybe the fact that he's made nobody happy is evidence of some degree <laughs> of impartiality. Probably means maybe he did a good job. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I again, I haven't scrutinized it to every level of detail, and I, I'm always so I want to be reluctant to say, oh, you know, heck of a job. Yeah. But uh, he, he, he certainly, I, I think he's at least shown independence. Sure. Um, he did not give either side what you know, the, the, the most partisans on either side exactly what they wanted, and I, I think I certainly think there's a lot of. True. Obviously, there's corroborating reporting on how inadequate and false mm -hmm. the Steele dossier was. The FISA warrant process is just a disaster. And again, the ramifications of this should be that different policies should be proposed by Republicans. Now, okay, you're the party of civil liberties now. Democrats have whole, wholesale abandoned this. You're right. They, can't, they use these processes to comfort your boy. Let's, let's end this. Let's end this Patriot Act era surveillance. Please, next time it comes for a vote, Vote against it. Mm -hmm. Vote against mm -hmm. it. You won't. Yeah. But I'm, I'm daring you to Re vote against Re Republicans it. for criminal justice reform, free Please. Kodak Black. <laughs> what is this world we live in? We're rising, coming up next. Tucker Carlson is out with episode five of his Twitter show. He commented on the deal Hunter Biden reached yesterday and the handling of his ongoing federal investigation. Let's watch some of that. The House Oversight Committee, under its new chairman, Congressman Jamie Comer, had discovered criminal behavior after reviewing thousands of pages of the Biden family's bank records. Now, publicly, to the extent they responded at all, the White House dismissed the investigation as, of course, politically motivated. In any case, irrelevant. Hunter Biden was an adult, so his business dealings had nothing at all to do with his father, in this case, the President of the United States. Your son, while there's no ties to you, could be charged by your Department of Justice. Got that? Well, there's no tie to you. So the answer is, in fact, in the question. Whatever Hunter Biden goes down for, and we know he is going to be charged because MSNBC said so, but when that happens, that's Hunter's problem. It's got nothing to do with Joe Biden. Rest easy, America. Carlson also recapped the charges Hunter Biden is expected to plead guilty to. This morning, Hunter Biden pleaded guilty to pretty much nothing. Biden pled to two misdemeanor tax evasion charges, then entered a diversion on a federal gun charge. That's it. As far as Merrick Garland's Justice Department is concerned, Hunter Biden is done. There was no pre-dawn raid carried live simultaneously on CNN. There was no perp walk, no handcuffs, no press conference. Above all, there was no felony. Hunter Biden, who broke federal gun laws, can still carry a gun. It's like it all never happened. In fact, the Justice Department just baptized Hunter Biden. A lifetime of sins washed away in an instant. It was a secular miracle. Glenn Greenwald had this to say on Fox News. Views since Tucker Carlson, the 8 p.m. slot on Fox with Tucker was not only consistently number one in the key demo, 25 to 54, but routinely had 400,000 viewers or more. Without Tucker, it's crashed to worse than MSNBC levels, barely 100,000 people. Hannity in 14th place behind Joanne Reed, a total collapse. So first, what did you think of Tucker's comments there on the Hunter Biden issue? Um, What's so difficult for Democrats to contend with is that there is a two-tier justice system. Jim, Democrats keep saying, well, Republicans have never cared about this before, and it's deeply hypocritical to be concerned about Trump's alleged mistreatment because of a politicized prosecution. 
um, when they don't care about poor people, disproportionately black and brown people caught up in the criminal justice system. Hey, fair enough. It is hypocritical. But it doesn't escape the reality that there is a two-tier justice system and that it is also hypocritical of Joe Biden to have been the writer of the crime bill and to, in this instance, be able to protect his son from the consequences of the very laws, the tough on crime laws that he has backed as both a senator and now as president of the United States of America. And if you want to expose people's hypocrisy, Democrats would be better served taking this opportunity to say, okay, well, fine. If, if, if um, you're concerned that uh, Hunter Biden is getting special treatment, let's loosen the laws so that regular Americans can have the same kinds of protections and grace that's being extended in this moment. But instead, they're caught up on this hamster reel of just being angry about the fact that Republicans are having kind of a selective concern about this particular issue. Moreover, you know, I, I've been thinking about this as we've discussed some of the lab leak um, revelations of the week and the confidence with which mainstream figures said the lab leak was crazy now being revealed as likely to be very, very wrong about that and all of the other things that they've gotten wrong over the years. And I've been thinking about the kind of void that has been created as we're talking about Hunter Biden and the laptop and the Burisma payments and whatever he was doing in Ukraine and getting paid for what exactly. And I was thinking about the fact that Democrats have almost not even tried to fill in that void, to offer an, an, a rationale for what is going on there. And that has allowed there to be, I think, a lot of healthy skepticism, frankly, among not just conservatives, but people that are frustrated with Joe Biden and, and the sure. anemic nature of his run. You know, that's a good point. And it's because their institutions have not really forced them to reckon exactly. with it. That mainstream media has not put that question to them. I, honestly, I wonder if that's a reaction to the perception that, like, the New York Times cared too much about Hillary Clinton's emails, emails yeah. thing, that whole, but her emails, that mm -hmm. whole framing, that they were obsessed with it and they wrote about it over and over again, and that this is like, in their mind, an equivalent sin, and so to overfocus on it would to draw some false equivalency between the Biden family and Trump, so mm -hmm. they're just not gonna do that. Because you're right, it's not covered. It's only being covered um, by the right, which, you know, which Biden and Democrats can kind of just ignore as as the opposition. Yeah. And um, I don't know. Obviously, there has been no smoking gun and certainly Republicans have been looking very hard for it. Right. That, that connects Hunter Biden's activities to the president's activities. Uh, elsewhere in Tucker's episode, he uh, plays a clip of an interview uh, of a liberal reporter with Joe Biden who frames the question to him, hey, your son is in trouble, what do you think of it, but frames it in a way that presumes that there's no connection between uh, Hunter, uh, Hunter and, and, and Joe Biden, saying, you know, obviously his actions don't reflect on you, but what do you think about this? And I was thinking about that presumption and the complete unwillingness to interrogate, and, interrogate it by liberals. And it does make me frustrated that while there was so much reporting on how inappropriate it was for Joe, uh, Donald Trump to nepotistically put his son-in-law in charge of peace in the Middle East, or the ways in which uh, uh, Ivana, his daughter, profited off of um, the administration, that there is not at least an equivalent concern about even things that are optically bad, even if they are not proven to be legally inappropriate. It's a credibility issue for both the media and the Biden administration. And while I 
disagree with a lot of the framing that Tucker chose to pursue in that clip. I don't think it was necessary for him to, for example, include so many pictures of Hunter Biden in the throes of his addiction with drug paraphernalia and in the middle of his teeth, sur dental surgery and all of the things that he included in that clip. There is a core point here that I think Democrats would be do well to listen to, which is if you don't want people to come to the worst conclusions, draw the worst conclusions about this area, why was what was Hunter Biden being paid for sure. as a non-expert in the gas industry well, in also Eastern the, Europe? Also, the mainstream media has no credibility on Hunter Biden-related issues because of the certainty with which you know they rejected the, the, the laptop, laptop story. Right. So, if you don't want you know there there to be all this innuendo that has traction by Republicans, then you need to fill in the void with some explanation or some criticism of your own. Yeah. Well, Tucker also weighed in on the Biden administration's views on foreign relations. From the administration's perspective, the concerns and the demands of, say, the Chinese government, or particularly the Ukrainian government, are far more important than the needs of American voters. We're cracking down on foreign influence, please. Hunter Biden was a foreign agent. He never registered as one. But for years, that's exactly what he was. He sold access to his father and other lawmakers to the Chinese and the Ukrainians and countries throughout the world. There's no debate about that. The FBI has known about it for years, for years, they've had possession of Hunter Biden's laptop, but they didn't charge him for it today. They never will. Mm. Yeah, look, I, I was I was looking for some coverage of this in a more liberal outlet. And the Washington Post is not exactly what I would call left-leaning. But there was an op-ed that they published um, in May by Jim Garrity. And he asked the following series of questions. You know, he says, OK, there's no, been no smoking gun. There's no direct connection to Joe Biden, et cetera. But you know, why did Gabriel Popovicu, a businessman convicted of bribery in Romania and relatedly investigated by British authorities, pay as much as $1 million that ended up in Biden family accounts? Does anyone believe that Chinese energy tycoon Yi Jianming in 2017 gave Hunter Biden a 2.8 carat diamond estimated to be worth up to $80,000 as a gift uh, out of the pure goodness of his heart? You know, these kinds of questions about Jim $10 million, uh, yeah. So he's a conservative writer for National Review. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's the only right? person who's going to be <laughs> exactly. asking yeah. these kind of questions. And I understand that there can be a, a just asking questions way of raising suspicion that is not vetted out. But when you have people making accusations that $10 million of foreign money has ended up in various Biden accounts from people who are not actually qualified to do the kind of work that would justify those kinds of payments, at very least, I think the public has right. offered an explanation. And it doesn't necessarily reflect on Joe Biden unless they can prove it. And they have been trying and haven't been able to do so, so that's a knock against them and those kinds of accusations. Ma mainstream organizations, institutions that should be doing this kind of thing disdain the just asking. That's that's a slur to say you're just asking yeah. questions, huh? Like that's some sin is, yeah. is to ask. Obviously, you can ask questions in a bad faith way. Sure. And you can ask questions from a position of, of like being wrong or not understanding the arguments or, yes. you know, just trying to muddy the waters or, or, or using it as a deflection away from some other person's bad behavior to say, well, what yeah. about X? Yeah. But the, the impulse to ask questions is, is what should animate all of us in our line of work in, in journalism and commentary. What can we do but ask the questions? I mean, they need to be asked, and sometimes the thing that everybody thinks or that the experts think, or at least the ones you're hearing from because there's right. always dissent, turns out not to be quite right. Or in, again, in the case of what we're discussing, re-COVID um, origins, pretty appallingly 
something else. And yeah. uh, and so you just can't have this frame that it's never appropriate to scrutinize. I mean, it, obviously, they don't even have that frame. They, but they're deciding what it's OK to ask questions about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do think that historically there have been these efforts to create uncertainty in areas where there is a lot, a high degree of scientific or even political certainty by asking bad faith questions. And we've seen this with the cigarette industry. We've seen this with um, climate change and big oil and things like mm -hmm. that. And because of lawsuits, we've seen documents behind the scenes that demonstrate that these companies know exactly what they're doing when they pay for and commission studies to try to disprove the links between smoking and lung cancer and things like mm -hmm. that. So I, I don't want to be dismissive of why people are so skeptical about interrogating some of this stuff. But I mean, I had the experience yesterday of asking what a scientific term in a paper meant. I said, hey, statisticians, can you let me know what this means? And that was framed by people who, statisticians offered great advice and I was happy, but the statistician then turned around and said that I was an anti-vaxxer for asking the question. So, you know, someone who I was planning to invite on my show to do further explanation before he turned around and called mm -hmm. me an anti-vaxxer for asking the question. So, I mean, I think that's a real concern. And I don't know where to go from there, but I don't think it's, it feels like a narrative control device at this point, as opposed to a yes. genuine skepticism of a bad faith question. Well, we will not keep our big mouths shut. We will be asking questions here every day, more rising right after this. Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. received direct pushback from NBC reporter Brandi Zadronzi during a walk-and-talk interview she conducted as the pair hiked on the hills of Los Angeles. In the testy interview published Monday, Zadronzi excuse me, challenged RFK about his anti-vaccine sentiment and accused him of spreading dangerous ideas. In one passage, Zadrozny, who referred to RFK Jr. as the conspiracy candidate, wrote, quote, he sees America as a divided place where an elite few conspire to crush the rest, where doctors poison the public, and where few institutions or experts can be trusted. People should be scared, he tells me. It's a dark notion one Kennedy believes that he, as president, can save the country from. So Brandy Zadrozny is uh, one of those kind of, uh, she's like, uh, what is his name? Um, one underscore guy and another NBC reporter, the, the kind of social media, Taylor Lorenz-ish. Sure. You know, commenting on the discourse a lot on social media and bemoaning the harassment and right-wing misinformation, all that kind of stuff. I would say a misinformation journalist policeman type person. Oh, Ben Collins. That's who I was thinking yeah. of, yes. I put her in that category. So this interview is exactly what I would have expected from her interviewing RFK Jr. Honestly, it was probably mild by mm. her standards, to, mm. be, to be frank. Um, again, it, this is a theme we're returning to a lot lately, but it, it shows the, the lack of, like skepticism is no longer a health, considered a healthy norm in the institution of journalism. Someone who is challenging mainstream or establishment notions in the way that RFK Jr. is, is viewed as dangerous, bad, wrong, conspiratorial, et cetera. Um, you know, even this is coming as, <laughs> again, even as we are finding out that the mainstream assumption about COVID's origins is 
likely to be very inaccurate. Yep. I'm just mentioning for the, sorry for the tenth time not to just keep harping yeah, no, on this, but it's... It should be harped on. It, it's, it should be harped on because it's important and it's relevant. Look, I, I, this, is, this is difficult to say, and I'm going to catch flack for saying this, but here's a true thing that mainstream media people need to recognize, and the sooner they recognize it, to the extent that they're... they're P political interest, which they shouldn't have, but their political interest is undermining RFK Jr.'s campaign. You have got to stop simply referring to him as an anti-vaxxer instead of challenging specifically the actual views he holds that you disagree with, some of which I also disagree with and I think are scientifically unsupported. But you're sitting here with all of the journalistic support and scientific backing behind you making these conclusory statements about someone who has, is himself vaccinated and who vaccinated their kids. So if you're an, a lay observer and you're watching, say you, you're one of the 7 million people or whatever it is that watches Joe Rogan, and you listen to that three-hour interview, and you heard him say that he's vaccinated, and you heard him cite all these scientific studies, you heard him go into excruciating detail about stuff, some of which, much of which, I would argue is either incorrect or a misrepresentation. Mm -hmm. And then you turn on... MSNBC, CNN to fact check it. And instead of running through in detail to have its actual claims and fact checking, they just say he's an anti-vaxxer. How does the, your understanding of RFK Jr. as someone who himself is vaccinated and who vaccinated him, his children square with the kind of pat conclusion that he is an anti-vaxxer? Moreover, he said a bunch of other things in the Rogan clip about the toxic nature of heavy metals in the environment and how the, you know, PFAS and, and BPAs and plastic bottles and all of this stuff that we all talk about. That is mainstream and every good liberal sitting in Westchester somewhere with their metal Yeti water bottle to avoid plastics knows is a thing. So I think you get credibility. This is something that liberals never understand. And when they're talking about COVID, when they're talking about socialism, when they're talking about anything, is you if you get credibility by acknowledging the things that your quote-unquote opponent says that are in fact true, conceding the stuff that is in fact reasonable and true, and demonstrating that you have the capacity intellectually to tease out what is factually incorrect and unsupported by science versus what is your own personal propaganda that's being uh, put out there in an effort to undermine a candidate mm -hmm. that you happen not to support because he is not the Democratic Party choice. I also think there should be more attention paid to what are the policy implications? What does he think the policy implications yes. of the things he's saying are? Because uh, frankly, if he has an idiosyncratic opinion about the science of vaccines that I think is inaccurate or other people think is inaccurate, is probably not going to be a make it or break it issue for me in terms of my support, at least compared to, well, what, what, so is he saying he's going to forbid people from getting, does he think the government should forbid people from giving right. vaccines? I don't agree with that. I'm a libertarian. I don't think the government should get in the way. That would cause me to, that would decline my, I, I'm, I'm not pledging to support anyone, but <laughs> that would make me less inclined to support. Right. Is he going to say, I think it should be your choice for the, you know, the, the approval process, whatever, um, but I'm never going to make federal workers, or any worker, you know, whole category of workers, get vaccinated the way Joe Biden said he would, that would increase my support for him. That's you see such I mean? a The policy point. implication, they're hammering him on what is his, his view of a scientific question, but we are choosing whether to make him a, a important policy implementer and what he thinks are the policy ramifications of these ideas should be much more important. And, it, and yeah. you can probably critique him in a way that would make me not actually agree with the yes. policies he's yes. supporting. So do that. Yeah, Joe Biden is a Catholic who believes in 
no offense, Ravi, transubstantiation yeah. and doesn't believe in the right. right to choose. But he has separated that from what he's willing to do as the president of the United States, which is why Democrats are willing to vote for him. Now, to your point, Robbie, somehow independent thinker Coleman Hughes, who has, I think, some really good insights on this, made his way onto a CNN panel and largely made exactly that point. Let's take a look at that clip. That people feel of the government's handling of COVID. And, you know, we know uh, the pharmaceutical industry is the number one lobbyer. Um, and, you know, the CDC, the FDA, NIH, unfortunately, there's a revolving door and regulatory capture and corruption that's legal. And people feel enormous resentment about how that led to policies that were heavy handed. And RFK is speaking to that. So Democrats could do one of two things. They can just focus on his like really, you know, looniest claims and just dismiss this guy's crazy. Or they could come up with a, a counter narrative that's like, we care about that stuff too, but we have a better way to solve it. Okay, is, is there, I hope this is not offensive, is there a similarly named black commentator that they accidentally, that they thought they were getting and accidentally emailed? Because <laughs> how on earth did he get onto that panel? Yeah, he's, he's, he's brilliant. Yeah. I, I love him. I really enjoy his commentary and his writing. He is a independent, interesting thinker, um, the exact opposite person that I would expect them to get for a panel like that. So I'm wondering if a booker got fired there. Sorry, that's <laughs> you know, my conspiracy theory of the day. <laughs> funny, he wasn't the only person on that panel who was offering some kind of measured critique of the Democratic Party and mainstream media's response to RFK Jr. Whatever you think of Scaramucci and the like, several people on that panel were pointing out some key truths. RFK Jr. is likable. RFK Jr.'s name and family has traction with people. RFK Jr. is polling at 20% at the time, at, a, at the same time that Joe Biden's favorabilities are low, and at a time at which a majority of Democratic voters don't want Joe Biden to run again. RFK Jr., to Coleman Hughes's point, it's not when he when you listen to him talk, he says, oh, well, I'm not running on quote unquote anti-vax. This is not the, the what I'm leading with. This is not, it's not central to my policies. What he's running on and what anyone who's actually listening to him is hearing is all of the anti-corruption stuff, the mm -hmm. desire to get uh, undermine the influence of the pharmaceutical industry, including in regulatory agencies, to shut down the revolving door, things that every Democratic candidate should be talking about. But instead, Joe Biden is appointing former pharmaceutical heads to cabinet positions and taking more money from the pharmaceutical companies than anybody else in Democratic primary. And the Democrats uh, on MSNBC and CNN are sitting there with their hands in the air saying, gosh, I have no idea why this guy has traction. It's right in front of your face. And as Coleman says, there's an opportunity for the Democratic Party in the sense of self-preservation to do something about it, to offer an alternative, to acknowledge the people's concerns, and offer mm. another path. But instead, my suspicion is that they're just going to keep saying anti-vax, anti-vax, anti-vax until that word becomes meaningless. It might actually encourage more people to be actually anti-vax mm. and do nothing to get at the root of what is motivating so many Americans to see something promising on RFK Jr.'s campaign. Right. And again, what, what does anti-vax mean? Does anti-vax mean there's not going to be any more vaccine mandates? That's your choice. Great. Or does, does, or does that mean, you know, I'm going to make it illegal to fund or research or do any right. kind of preventative medicine on these categories, which I think would be bad? What do we mean? Or do we just mean, I think, his question about his, his mercury concern is not up to date and not accurate? Well, well, then say is that, that. Is, and is that the biggest issue facing right. the electorate right now? Right. I'm sorry. Well, what I learned last night is that if you tweet out 
multiple peer-reviewed studies on the potential benefits of vitamin D and warding off the worst effects of COVID if you mm -hmm. take it regularly in advance, that makes you anti-vax. Right. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's become it's one of these terms like Putin puppet, et cetera, that is becoming so broad as to be meaningless. And I'm really concerned about what's right. going to happen when there are real, these real potential downstream effects of people having vaccine skepticism to the extent that people aren't getting their childhood vaccines and measles and mumps and all of these um, childhood diseases run rampant as they do from time to time when there are authentic anti-vax movements afoot. Yeah, absolutely. Well, more rising right after this. Twitter CEO Elon Musk has announced new rules on the platform for harassment. He tweeted, repeated targeted harassment against any account will cause the harassing accounts to receive at minimum temporary suspensions. The words cis or cisgender are considered slurs on this platform. Musk said this after one Twitter user tweeted yesterday. Uh, yesterday, after posting a tweet saying that I reject the word cis and don't wish to be called it, I received a slew of messages from trans activists calling me sissy and telling me that I am cis whether or not I like it. Just imagine if the roles were reversed. I guess it's cis. I always say cis. I had a little Well, Robbie, you can pronounce it the way you want, <laughs> but if you tweet it, you click it banned. What do you make of this? Uh, well, look, I agree that repeatedly pestering someone, harassing them, tweeting at them in a irritating name calling, regardless of what the word is in question, in a way designed to yeah, you can get banned for that. You, you could already get banned for that. Yeah, um, but this is the question. So I, I agree with that in principle. But the question of what defines harassment is very subjective. Entirely subjective, so, Brianna. For example, every time I'm critical of the war in Ukraine, a series of bots who I'm pretty confident are the K-Hive uh, Brock bots, the formerly Hillary Clinton bots that became um, Kamala Harris bots that the LA Times reported on a few years back. You know, after breathlessly covering Bernie bros and Bernie bots for years, they, there was finally this one expose about these K-Hive bots and how nasty they are. If I quote, if I tweet about Green parties, third party runs, if I tweet about the war in Ukraine, these clearly, in my subjective view, Democratic Party associated yeah. bots swarm me. The so-called NAFO dogs, which are the kind of like pro-Ukrainian dog, dog uh, Shiba Inu emoji people, swarm every post, every post that I make. What language are we speaking I don't know. <laughs> Twitter, and it's horrible, and I wish I didn't speak No, no, language. right, absolutely. Like, I, uh, you know, I, I did my radar today on LabLeak. I called out people who got it embarrassingly wrong. I tweeted about it. I mean, I didn't tag um, Apoorva Mandavili or the other people that I was r calling out aggressively, but if I had tagged them, was that harassment? Some some of these people, especially mainstream people, have a real knee-jerk attitude about what constitutes harassment. Um, and again, we should I should remind everyone that you can block people, you mm -hmm. can mute people, mm -hmm. you always have the power to see less of someone that is harassing you. You yes. have the power to see none of people who are harassing you. So it's always interesting that it becomes this question of, well, what should be the rule for absolutely everyone on the policy in, in absolutely every circumstances, where honestly different people have different um, levels of comfort with exposure yes. to negative, irritating, provocative content, and you should just be able to, you already have this power, but and Twitter should, I think, come up with even better tools, even more precise knobs to turn the dials up and down in order to see more of the content that you want to engage right. with and see. And I, I would never, I don't know, 
I have been harassed and it has been unpleasant, but I have never tried to, you know, call mommy or think right. that the whole content moderation regime needs to be changed Just to protect my personal comfort. Yeah, I mute Bye. and block people accordingly. That was so a that, real interesting photo of my own face you sent to me. For some <laughs> right. reason, you are now blocked. I, I have, I've had videos uh, in which I made, made for the Bernie campaign uh, with the sound edited out and new subtitles on the bottom that have me saying things that I would never obviously say, cursing and and, and, the, and the like. And That I would report. You know, it, it never got taken down. There was no Wild. issue. And that was before Elon. I would report that. So, so this is the thing. The question that what people are raising is, when you say cis is a slur on the platform, yeah. that suggests that there is a heightened standard for uh, getting taken down, getting blocked or censured from the platform. If you do that brand of harassment versus a kind of harassment that Elon Musk might not take so personally. So is our derogatory terms about trans people also considered to be slurs on the platform? Is dead naming someone considered to be a slur on the platform? The question about whether dead naming someone should get you kicked off the, the platform right. was a really hot one a few months ago. And I think a lot of the people who were on the side of that's a bridge too far, you should be able to refer to Caitlyn Jenner by the names that she used when she won the Olympics or what have you right. without being banned. Well, do you hold that same standard for someone who was going to refer to Elon Musk as a cis man or themselves as a cis man or woman? Right. I mean, I think if you tweet at Caitlyn Jenner over and over again going, hey, Bruce, you're a dude, you're sure. a dude, Bruce, you're a dude, and they moderate you, that's fine. If you say Caitlyn Jenner used to be Bruce Jenner when that individual won the Olympics, I don't think that should be moderated at all. Similarly, probably just, I mean, cisgender is just like the term to refer to someone who is not Transgender. <laughs> what I suspect here is this is Elon somehow like signaling his kind of opposition to the concept or to wokeness. He seems pretty worked up on gender-related issues. Yeah. So maybe this is his way of saying that there should there should not be a, a, a category of trans. That's what I if I'm reading between the lines. I think that's what right. he's saying here is there doesn't need to be a cisgender category because yeah. there doesn't necessarily need to be a transgender category. Yeah. Maybe I'm reading too much into that, and that's not what he's saying. Yeah. But um, but I mean. Sissy does sound like kind of a slur. If well, it are sounds like an anti-gay slur, which is kind well, of the S, irony but, of it. Uh, yeah, but that's seems to be what they're like. Be, don't be don't be awful to people online. Um, but again, you have the power to not engage in this. Yeah, um, you can you can mute that word, right? So then you wouldn't see any tweets that even contain it. Sure, sure. I mean, look, if it bothers you. I, I, I'm really, again, I'm not saying this. I think I did a radar about this when it happened. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying this because I want sympathy. Quite the opposite. I'm raising this as an example of how I handled this stuff on my own without needing an entire censorship regime to protect me and my feelings. Yes. But, like, when I criticized Joe Cicerone for his stance on Ukraine, I had a legion of bots calling me the N-word and posting pictures of a NAFO dog in a cotton field saying, you dropped this. And there was no proclamation from Twitter that it's inappropriate to call people the N-word, insinuate they should be slaves in a cotton field, all because they had a political opinion that differed from another person's. And so I do think this feels, even if you, as I do, I, I agree that you shouldn't be harassing people in any respect. I think that all of the, like, the, 
the repeated posting under people's posts, even if it's you know these trans activists against Elon Musk, and even if I ideologically agree with them over Elon Musk, at a certain point is is I think well described as harassment and inappropriate. But is Elon Musk selectively deplatforming harassment when he right. personally is bothered by it, but indifferent to the concerns that, frankly, a lot of marginalized people raised long before he bought the website, that harassment against them was going unmoderated. Yeah. And look, this frankly just goes, does go a little bit in both directions. If you poke the bear on social media, if you, if you say something designed to provoke and inflame, and this is kind of what Peter Hotez, the, the very pro-vaccine doctor, has kind of done this last week or so, you're going to get no matter which, both community, you're going to get, right. you can get tons of attacks from right-wing people. You can get tons of attacks from liberal resistance people. And like, these are attacks, but no, no one is physically assaulting you. Yeah. You're being called out in harsh, irritating, and sometimes well over the line kind of commentary. But, you know, I, and I, fe I feel for people, when this happens to people of no notoriety or, or, or no, people who are not in the public eye and are not really well equipped to withstand this kind of thing, I absolutely feel for them. And social media can be a yeah. very nasty place yeah. in those cases. But for you and I and Peter Hotez and everyone else who has stepped into the public advocacy light is, is paid, is our jobs to engage in this kind of commentary. Right. It can be a little, woe is me, poor me, they're really coming out. Like, you know, you don't have to do this work. He you don't have to poke the bear if, if that's if you really don't want you know bees chasing you around yeah. the forest. Not not everyone's cut out for it, Robbie. <laughs> not everyone is. Well, meanwhile, a judge struck down an Arkansas law banning gender transition care for minors, saying it discriminates against trans people and violated the constitutional rights of doctors. He wrote, "Quote: Rather than protecting children or safeguarding medical ethics, the evidence showed that the prohibited medical care improves the mental health and well-being of patients, and that by prohibiting it, the state undermined the interest it claims to be advancing. Hmm. This was a little bit unexpected and kind of as perceived as good news from the trans community. Uh, what do you make of this holding and the choice to frame it in large part as protecting the rights of doctors to make medical decisions? Yeah, I haven't looked at it closely enough, but you know, as you know, I am not, dis regardless of what I might think about the science of when this care is should be recommended, I, it, it seems to me it can be helpful in some cases for some people and was not a good recommendation for some young people who are just kind of struggling with regular body image issues. But honestly, it's none of my business. It's a <laughs> decision to be made by families and their doctors, yeah. and I don't support legislation that criminalizes it. I, I Again, I broadly default toward fan I don't want the government broadly speaking overruling fan I think families are are best equipped to make decisions for their families even families that sometimes make bad decisions for their kids better you than the government yeah. um, the government comes in they takes the they take the kids away even in cases where there actually like is abuse you know, splitting up young people from their siblings and their parents even bad parents and putting them in foster care and moving them from one place to another is extremely traumatizing. Yep. It, it has to, the home environment has to be real awful, honestly. This, I know this is a hot and mm. controversial take. It has to be really bad mm. for the CPS solution to be an improvement, honestly, mm. I, from covering this issue. Yeah, so no, I, I really want right. to leave people right. alone, even though I might not agree or approve. That's, sorry, that's the best way to run Yeah, society. what's interesting is that this does leave open changes in the scientific community. Mm -hmm. 
uh, with respect to how to address these sorts of issues. Many people point to some changing norms that are happening in Europe, where there is, a, I think, a little bit less um, of a tendency to engage in certain kind of more significant surgical interventions at an earlier age, and the kind of medical standards are in flux. If the medical standards are in flux and doctors are no longer recommending these kinds of things, then that has a kind of self-corrective, to the extent that you think it needs correcting, but a self-modulating um, effect on how many minors are getting uh, gender-affirming surgeries. But I, do, I don't see any reason why that shouldn't be a conversation within the medical community as opposed sure. to something that's being politicized. Sure. Although, you know, the medical community has politicized everything by saying their <laughs> recommendations should be law enforced on everybody else, but uh, yeah. maybe they're kind of reaping that uh, consequences. But you're right, and I agree that we should not um, be legislating that. More rising in just a minute. Pentagon found that it had overestimated the amount of funding for ammunition, missiles, and other equipment it sent to Ukraine by $6.2 billion due to an accounting error. <laughs> Let's listen. Following up from um, some announcements earlier this year, during the department's regular oversight of our execution of presidential drawdown authority for Ukraine, we discovered inconsistencies in equipment valuation for Ukraine. In a significant number of cases, services used replacement costs rather than net book value, thereby overestimating the value of the equipment drawn down from U.S. stocks and provided to Ukraine. Once we discovered this misvaluation, the Comptroller reissued guidance on March 31st, clarifying how to value equipment in line with the financial management regulation and DOD policy to ensure we use the most accurate of accounting methods. We have confirmed that for FY23, the final calculation is $3.6 billion. And for FY22, it is $2.6 billion for a combined total of $6.2 billion. These valuation errors in no way limit or restricted the size of any of our PDAs or impacted the provision of support to Ukraine. And while the DOD, while the DOD retains the authority to utilize the recaptured PDA, this has no bearing on appropriated USAI or Ukraine PDA replenishment funding approved by Congress. Journalist Aaron Mate spoke for us all, I think, when he responded, yet another accounting error frees up billions of more dollars for the Ukraine proxy war. How come these errors never free up any money for U.S. healthcare or the unhoused? Yes. So as that Anne Hathaway lookalike told us, uh, they have gotten some more money. You know, it, how nice for them. It's like they drew that community chess card in Monopoly. <laughs> Bank error in your favor, collect $200. Mm -hmm. Lucky, yeah. lucky, lucky. Yeah, incredibly lucky. Remember, I wish the Pentagon would accidentally give me $6 billion. Well, they might, because remember, the Pentagon in November of last year failed its fifth consecutive audit. Yes. They, failed, they were unable to account for 61% 61% of its $3.5 trillion in assets. Now, when we're thinking about what the scale of that $6.2 billion that they've just come up with and then are sending to Ukraine, what is that? Well, that's almost as big as Mexico's entire military national defense budget, which is $7.2 billion. And lest we forget 
America's military budget is bigger than the next 10 countries' military budgets combined. Right. That audit was for $3.5 trillion in yep. assets, with a T, $3.7 trillion in liabilities. Uh, department officials couldn't account for 61% of it. I remember um, you know, when the Iraq and Afghanistan wars were uh, more active, the routine auditing, failures, mismanagement of money, they lost so much money in those conflicts, money they couldn't account for, where it was spent, what was what it was used to build, where the weapons went, probably picked up by our enemies, et cetera, et cetera, and so mm -hmm. on. So this is not actually at all surprising. I, the government is not great at managing uh, money, at least of all this aspect of it, the, uh, the Pentagon. Um, yeah, well, it's worth noting that this kind of malpractice is not a government-wide phenomenon. It is specifically disproportionately bad in the context of the American military. And I don't think it's that difficult to understand why that is or how this just happens to keep happening in this one sector of government. Now, imagine if you found out that the Social social Security money, 62% of it or 60 whatever percent of funds being paid into Social Security was going missing, or uh, HUD somehow lost 60% of its budget and it couldn't account for it. In fact, one of the most efficient parts of our, uh, our government, I, wait a minute, okay, this is a ahead. fact. One of the most efficient parts of our government is in fact Medicare, which is why it is such a, a highly ranked and highly esteemed program in the context of the United States. And the administration of that program is a model, potentially, for, for all of the waste and abuse that happens in the private healthcare industries, where a lot of the savings would come from if we did switch to a Medicare for all style program. Now, some other commentators like Stephen Simler, who does a lot of great crit criticism of um, um, U.S. imperialism and the problems with our war budget, pointed out that um, uh, Biden's 2024 budget proposal includes an additional $886 billion for the Pentagon, a mere $26 billion to fight climate change. That's their emissions mitigation program. He describes that as tantamount to climate denial and is certainly out of step with how the Democratic Party holds itself out as a Greek, uh, you know, a, a, a pro-climate party, a party that's being serious about climate change in contrast uh, to Republicans, and also ignores the fact that the military uh, is one of the U.S. military is one of the world's biggest polluters. Mm -hmm. uh, there are auditing issues in other government branches, but I will are. accept that the Pentagon has been uniquely bad yeah, on this and, front. Yeah, and who's, who, want to gather, want to hazard a guess as to why? Why, Brianna? Well, let's go back to some more of this, these Stephen Simler um, quotes about how much military contractors, again, another huge donor to the government and a huge part of our, the, like the socialism of the American government here, it's socialism for military contractors and the like, um, money is funneling from these defense budgets directly to some of the richest, most influential lobbying groups in the United States of America. We have a country where military contractors can expect $470 billion from the bipartisan budget agreement in 2024, well, and this money is going right down the drain and happens to yeah. be getting lost in the sector where there's so much fraud and abuse. And the bipartisan nature is the real issue. Yep. Um, I, I was, Democrats are not overly exercised about government accounting in general. Republicans could use, could weaponize this, could say, you know, wasting taxpayer dollars, but because it's for defense, they have this blind spot where they're like, well, whatever defense, so what if you lose $6 billion? Um, I, I hope this is used as a wedge issue by Republicans who, who seem willing to countenance some different foreign policy strategy with respect to Ukraine. So let's follow through on that and, and, and 
talk about how there should be different policy changes with the budget being allocated to Ukraine, or that it should come with some strings, or this should be the last time. And we say you have to sit down at the negotiating table and you know not bring us ever closer to the precipice of World War III. Yeah. But uh, it's uh, it's really, you know, it's it's. It's not. It's because of the bipartisan nature. It's not something that either side wants to talk about or talks about nearly enough. And yeah. as you said, this is the fifth audit they failed in a row. Yes. This is not. This is the first we're hearing of this. That the Pentagon yes. doesn't know the and money it's spending abroad. It happens hear, every year. I'm sorry, we're not going to hear the fiscal, fiscal conservatives in the Republican Party up no. in arms about this either. We just finished. I wish we would negotiating the so-called debt ceiling crisis, in which Republican after Republican averred that we had a spending problem, not a, um, a revenue problem, but then turned around after criticizing the war in Ukraine, declined to actually say they would cut the military budget. We, we talked to Marjorie Taylor Greene about this right here on this program. You'll say things rhetorically that sound like you're interested in cutting defense spending, cutting our investment in Ukraine so that you can do more domestic spending. But at the end of the day, when we're literally in the middle of a negotiation to do exactly that, to recalibrate where what our spending priorities are, there is this bipartisan protection of the defense budget at all costs and a incredible willingness to immediately cut the kinds of social safety net programs that disproportionately affect the poorest and most vulnerable people in the United States of America. And what does it mean about us as a country when we have the biggest military budget in the world right. by a, a factor of 10? And on top of that, have the worst health co outcomes in the world, even though we spend more per person on health care than any other industrialized nation. Why is there no accountability? Shouldn't the, the, this happens every year? Shouldn't the shouldn't the head of the Department of Defense resign in in embarrassment yes. after losing billions of dollars? Where's the hearing because, on that? Yeah. Yeah, let's get on that. You know, and, I, and I would like to hear some more clarity from some of the presidential uh, candidates on this as well. It is, at this point, kind of easy to message that you're in the right place or on the, on the populist mm -hmm. place on being anti-war, et cetera. But I want to hear more specific commitments about how much of the military budget they intend to cut, on what sort of a timeline, who is going to be responsible for all of these sorts of failed audits, the kind of hearings that they expect to see and the kind of accountability. You know, RFK Jr., people who are at Marianne, who are both talking a lot about corruption and the capture of these kinds of agencies. Are we also going to specifically talk about all the money that's going to defense contractors and private industry and how they are profiting enormously while Americans are suffering at home. The Libertarian Party's presidential candidate in the last few cycles had a plan to cut the military budget by 50%, mm. which sounds like a good start to me. Yeah. More rising right after this. Rapper Kodak Black's legal team blasted the Biden DOJ for Hunter Biden's plea deal yesterday, calling that decision a direct reflection of a two-tier justice system. The judge presiding over Black's case handed the hip-hop artist a much stiffer sentence for committing the fundamentally same crime as the president's son. Mm -hmm. Kodak Black was sentenced to three years behind bars after pleading guilty in 2019 to providing an incorrect Social Security number on a federal gun purchase form in order to buy three firearms from a Miami area shop. Which is a no-no. It is a no-no. But it is a federal weapons crime, which is the same thing Hunter Biden committed. And uh, 
I think there is a two-tiered justice system going on Yeah, here. I mean, it's a fascinating look. Obviously, there's something kind of upside down about uh, conservatives who haven't historically been very invested in um, making creating more equality in the criminal justice system. There tends to be a desire to ratchet up criminal penalties, generally speaking, and be tough on crime. But it is fascinating to watch this one Twitter user, Chicago One Ray, tweets, this is what white privilege looks like, folks. Uh, where is Al Sharpton or Benjamin Crump when the Biden DOJ mm. decides to let white people walk when blacks are serving time for the same crime? No one's above the law. And it's not just this person. It's Marjorie Taylor <laughs> Greene. Do we have that tweet? Can we throw that up there? Marjorie Taylor Greene tweets, um, unfortunately, Kodak's daddy was not. Oh, that's Mehdi Hassan. But uh, do we have the Marjorie Taylor Greene one? There it is. Unfortunately, Kodak's daddy was not president. And he's not white. Marjorie? Woke Marjorie. Woke Marjorie Taylor Greene is pointing out a racially tiered criminal justice system. Gosh, is Marjorie Taylor Greene acknowledging that black defendants fare worse under our laws? They fare worse <laughs> under the favored sons of Hunter, of, of Joe Biden. Uh, yeah, she, I mean, she even makes the racial point. She even makes, that's the thing. Like, how do you back, at, at some later date, is she going to go back to the kind of uh, colorblind, we're all equal, racism doesn't exist anymore? No, framing? she's Marjorie Taylor X now. <laughs> I'm, I'm dying for this. Now, yeah. we did throw up for a second. Let's pull that back. Uh, Mehdi Hassan's tweet. This has been the typical response. Suddenly, every Hunter Biden-obsessed Republican on this hell site is an expert on Wesley Snipes and Kodak Black and is up in arms over double standards on tax avoidance and evasion. Well, um, and he's pointing to that big uh, New York Times expose on uh uh, President Trump's taxes. And look, to me, fair enough. Take them all down. Don't let mm -hmm. the rich and powerful get off with what uh, poor and working class people do. We've talked about this ad nauseum in the context of the story about the IRS funding, how the most audited city in the United States of America is this tiny poor town in Mississippi where the average income is like below Disgusting. the minimum wage. Disgusting. So, you know, there, there, there is quite obviously a two-tiered system in the United States of America. Now, Kodak Black long history of oh, crimes. Yeah. He's only 27 years old. Yeah, he's, he's been a very productive uh, um, man. Was actually pardoned by President Trump before yep. Trump left office. Yeah, so this is an interesting posture because there's an argument that says, well, Kodak Black's legal Has team is obviously sympathetic. No, it's, it's more sympathetic to Donald Trump because ultimately it was Donald Trump who mm -hmm. let him out of prison. So now he's want, gonna want to turn the screw to Joe Biden out of a kind of like sympathy, gr gratitude, shall we say, for what Donald Trump did. You know, it's, did. it's interesting. The criminal justice reform category is in a is in a weird place because I think it was it support bipartisan support for criminal justice reform was I think increasing through the aughts and through the beginnings of the twenty teens mm -hmm. and uh, culminating in the First Step Act, which mm -hmm. Trump signed and touted as a massive achievement. Mm -hmm. Um, now I see like DeSantis people, the DeSantis war room is talking about how that was the worst thing ever done in the history of time. You know, in the kind of greater, there are concerns about crime, whether or not you think crime has actually increased, concerns about crime are more salient today than they were 10 years ago, which has, I think, led some people who are willing to go along with criminal justice reform to back off it. So it's, it's I think it's repolarizing a bit. Um, Trump was, and, and this is encapsulated by Trump's 
kind of both and mm -hmm. approach to criminal justice reform where he's still touting the First Step Act at the same time saying that like all drug dealers should be executed. Mm -hmm. Rep Mira called him out for this, referencing um, uh, Alice Johnson, uh -huh. I believe her name is, the the grandmother who was a who was let go under the First Step Act and really became the face of that movement in this uh, in this uh, interview they had the other day. Let's play some of that. I focused on nonviolent crime. As an example, a woman who you know very well was in jail. She had 24 more years to serve. She served for 22 years. She had 20 Alice Johnson. Alice. She was in the Super Bowl. High quality. Oh, yeah. I said, how many years? And she was on a telephone call, and they were involved in selling marijuana, mostly marijuana. And she got like 50 years in jail. But she'd be killed under your plan. Huh? As a drug dealer. No, no, no. Under my, oh, under that? Uh, it would depend on the severity. It but would depend on the severity. She's technically a former drug dealer. She, the, she had multi-million dollar cocaine ring. Any drug dealer. Look. So even it, Alice Johnson in that ad. She can't do it, okay? By the way, if that was there, no, she wouldn't be killed. It would start as of now, so you wouldn't go to the no, past. No, but your policy. No, 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 no starting now, yeah. Are you... You're laughing because he's doing the killing motion as he's describing. No, because he's saying, "Well, it will technically Alice right. Johnson wouldn't be implicated because it's not retroactive, you know." So somebody else's grandmother, but not Alice right. Johnson. Yeah, look. First you of see all, the confusion. Yes, he, he did not do well in that moment, and this is a masterclass. The journalist should be looking closely at this Brett Bear interview. Brett Bear did what <laughs> Caitlin Collins and so many other people mm -hmm. are unwilling to do, which is to be come off as genuinely dispassionate and just putting the questions and not seeming like a bad faith actor trying to gotcha somebody. Because only because Brett Baer was so, but you know, this is your plan, like help me understand. Did the did did Donald Trump not have an opening to be like, you're trying to get me, or like you're trying to catch me up? It, it didn't feel like a gotcha. And consequently, Donald Trump had to justify his conflicting positions and did a poor job doing so. So yeah, the Republican Party is in a really fascinating place right now on criminal justice issues, especially as they increasingly are willing to dabble in weaponizing identity politics to turn the screw on Democrats. If Marjorie Taylor Greene is in a world where she's willing to say black people are treated worse by the American criminal justice system, and you have all of these conservatives now saying it's not just that uh, Kodak Black is being treated differently because Joe Biden is the—sorry, uh, Hunter Biden is the president's son and he's affluent, but also because he's white, they're opening themselves up to having to recognize what a lot of criminal justice advocates have been saying for a very long time. Right. And the Republican Party, I mean, under Trump, was going after uh, black voters, obviously did not do extraordinarily, extraordinarily well by any stretch of the imagination, but at the margins did actually do a little bit better. Yeah, this has to do with, uh, with actually race is kind of depolarizing a little bit mm -hmm. as this becomes as, as the two parties become more of, of class based parties, mm -hmm. frankly, with Republican Party catering to working class people, at least in its rhetoric. You can obviously take issue with the policies, but the rhetoric is absolutely targeting working class voters and black vote black voters are, are certainly um, are more more liberal or more to the left than white voters. But within the Democratic Party. Black voters on a lot of culture and social issues, particularly, are not to are not. 
to the left of white, the white voters are to the left of them. So overall, you have a, a state where black voters, are, yes, are in the Democratic coalition and are not conservative, but within the Democratic coalition are, are a little, you can find differences in the kinds of voters that the Democratic Party increasingly sure, speaks to. And as a black presidential candidate, Cornell West, uh, plants his flag in the general election as an independent Green Party candidate, so one who has extremely high re name recognition mm -hmm. among black voters and is broadly uh, respected among black voters as well. There is, you know, a little bit of diversity there because of some of his attacks on Obama, et cetera. But increasingly, people are more open to criticisms mm. of Obama, especially as he spends his time, you know, hanging out with uh, millionaires and making uh, podcast content that nobody listens to. And I think that is setting up a really interesting dynamic in the kind of racial playing field for 2024. Of course, we'll continue to follow all of that. As the, the Obama Meghan Markle podcast, co-host of podcast. <laughs> It'll be the most expensive, least listened to podcast of all time. Well, that does it for us for today. I didn't comment on this yet, but I, I think we kind of coordinated, sort of. We're both in a blue tartan sort of mood Am today. I allowed to say that? Because you laugh at me when I say, oh, we're matching, and you're like, well, those are both, those are not on the same color wheel or whatever it I is. I think it's like a science, a scientifically backed truth that men are not as good as identifying <laughs> colors. It's a hunter-gatherer thing, Robbie. Yeah. You weren't the one that no, was no, supposed no. to be picking the berries. So I'll let you off. But this time today, I validate you, sir. Mm, I'm hunting the <laughs> the elk or the moose or whatever. All right, we'll be back to bring you another very special edition of our show tomorrow. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Bye-bye.